Amen. Thank you, guys. Good morning. Most of you are here every week, and you know who I am, but if you're new here, my name's Trevor, and I'm one of the lay preachers here at Maricopa Springs. Uh, Grady, the main preaching pastor, I think might be by himself camping. Uh, It seemed like not a lot of people went, but he's up in the mountains enjoying himself, so I'm here this morning with you guys, and we're going to continue to press on through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, today, we're actually, actually entering into the 24th chapter, the final chapter of the book of Luke, and we'll be looking at the first seven verses together. If you don't have a Bible, please don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. Chris would love to just give you a Bible. You can take it with you if you want it. If you have one at home, you just left it. If you come here every week and you left it, Get a Bible in your hand. We want you to read the text as we go through it together this morning. Um, Last week, we had the kids in here with us, and Grady actually asked me to lead us in what's called a prayer moment. We try to do those every single week, and then when I showed up, he said, oh, hey, by the way, I cut out the prayer moment. Uh, Just due to the fact that we had the kids, we had some other things planned, so I did not get to do that. So this morning, as we lead into our time in the Word, I want to read for us a verse from Jeremiah that I was reading a couple weeks ago. And it's applicable for us as the church uh, to receive God's word. Let me read it for us, and then we'll spend some time in prayer. Listen to the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. And I was reading Jeremiah, and this is a striking verse because if you've read Jeremiah, you understand that Jeremiah has suffered a lot. Israel is being persecuted. God is sending destruction upon his people. But Jeremiah here finds God's words, and the imagery here is he takes them and he eats them. He finds nourishment from God's word. He consumes God's word. And the result is that the word of God became to Jeremiah a joy and the delight of his heart. Christian, if you're here this morning and this does not express your heart before God in his word, then then that's a problem. And that's a problem that if you're in Christ can be fixed by feasting upon his word, by coming fresh again to the scriptures, humbling yourself before God, and receiving the delight and joy of God's word. So let's take some time and pray before we dive into the text, and then we will do so together verse by verse. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and I thank you this morning for the sheep that you have brought to this congregation. God, there's saints around the entire world right now who are gathering together because Christ has set them free, because your word has become to them the joy and the delight of their heart. They have escaped the snare of darkness, and they've been ransomed into the kingdom of your beloved Son. God, I pray for us as believers here at Maricopa Springs that scripture this morning would do the same. It would convict. It would rebuke. It would encourage. It would strengthen. And God, it would draw even one sinner to Christ this morning who has yet to believe upon the gospel. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your word is power. And God, may you just preach us full this morning, God, as we pray each other full of your word. We thank you and we bless your name. In Christ's name, amen. So Luke 24 We are in verses 1 through 7. Let's read it together, and then we'll break it down. It says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, 
bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? They asked them. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. The background leading into this is last week, Jesus, his body was taken off the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, and Grady preached a great sermon on that. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen. And he talked a lot about just the cost of discipleship. And we see that Joseph last week, he, he didn't care about identifying with Jesus as far as the consequences were concerned. Jesus just taken, uh, taken prisoner overnight, crucified, and this man, Joseph, was willing to identify himself with Christ, take his body off the, off the cross, and put it into his own tomb. And it's been now three days. Jesus was crucified on Friday. His body was taken off the cross, buried in the tomb, so he's in Friday, all day Saturday, and now it's Sunday morning, and it's early. It's early in the morning. And we have here some women who had been preparing spices the night before, eager and ready to go care for Jesus' dead body. And it was on the first day of the week, it says in, in verse 1, and it was very early in the morning that they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. Now, Jim just got up a second ago and said he's not an early morning person, and I think he might have to repent here. These women were up early, Jim. Uh, no, it doesn't mean you have to get up early, but these women had nothing else on their mind except to go and to care for Jesus' body. These women were truly devoted to Christ. Like Joseph of Arimathea, they did not care that they were identified with this criminal who was just crucified, and they wanted nothing more than to rise early and to go be with Christ. And I think this is perfect for us as we dive into this text, to not just glaze over this, to pass over this as if it's just a narrative passage, guys, how much do you desire Christ? We might not get up at 4.30 in the morning as some saints of old is required to be holy. Uh, God isn't so much concerned about what time we rise, but what he's concerned about and what he desires from us is that our affections for him, our devotion for him is continual. From the rising up in the morning when we, when we get up to the entire day and putting our head on our pillow at night. Does our life, is it defined by our devotion to Christ? Do we rise in the morning and we think about the world, the way we're going to make money, the things we're going to do, the things we're going to acquire, the vacations we're going to plan, as if this life is what we're living for? Or like these women, are, is our life completely centered around Jesus, so much so that everything hinges on us desiring him, following him, knowing him, and these women set for us a great example. Next week, as Grady continues on with this passage, we will see more about how these women were devoted to Jesus. But let that sink in for you this morning. How does your daily life look in regards to being devoted to Jesus? In verse 2, it says that as they were coming, they found that the stone was rolled away from the tomb. Now, 
when we do what's called expositional preaching, meaning we take Scripture and it's broken down in these verses, which God didn't put there originally, but they've, they've been put into the text over time and they're useful for us most of the time. But expositional preaching or teaching is when we open up the Scripture and we seek to be faithful to pull out what God is saying from His Word. But sometimes we come across these verses and they seem at face value to be like, all right, let's just keep moving. And to me, this verse, verse 2, seems to be like that. When we read it, it just says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Okay, let's just move on. That's a good nugget there. Thank you. But as I was looking at the other Gospels, there's an interesting nugget in Mark's account of this text. And listen to what it says. In Mark 16, verse 3, it says, And they, meaning these women, as they were walking to Jesus' tomb, as they had prepared spices the night before, as they were up early, eager to go to his body, it says that they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They had a dilemma that they were talking about on their way to bring spices to Jesus. And this was not something that they could just snap their fingers and figure out. We're talking about a pretty big stone that was placed in front of this tomb that these two ladies were not going to be able to just budge together and move out of the way. And as I was reading this, this was just such a sweet nugget of truth for my soul, and I hope it will be for you guys, and that is this. How many things in our life are we talking about amongst one another? We're thinking about in our own daily life that we're saying, okay, I'm going to serve the Lord in these areas, But how is this going to take place? How is this need going to be provided? How is that going to work itself out when we get there? And I hope you can take from this the reality that God knows our needs. He cares for us. He desires that we serve him and are devoted to him. And in our devotion to Christ, beloved, God will take care of what we need to have taken care of. And these women arrived to the tomb, and what did they find? They probably were amazed. Oh my goodness, the stone is gone. It's as if we're walking and God just says, yep, answered. And this is is critical for us. Trusting the Lord, knowing him, knowing that he knows everything that we need. So these women show up in verse 2. The stone is rolled out of the way. And now here we are in verses 3 through 5. Let me read them. It says that they went into the tomb, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. I want to talk for a second about this word perplexed. And we want to ask the question, why were these women perplexed? The word perplexed is basically to be without understanding, kind of baffled, like, whoa, what is going on here? These women were with Jesus. In a minute here, the angels tell them, don't you remember that when you were with him in Galilee, he told you specifically that he was going to be crucified, he was going to be buried, and then he was going to rise from the dead. These women heard Jesus plenty of times, I'm sure, as we've been going through Luke time and time again. Jesus tells his disciples, he tells his enemies that this is the plan of God. And yet these women come to the tomb sorrowful, broken, not understanding, thinking they're going to care for the dead body of Jesus, and now he's gone. And the tomb, the stone is rolled away, so they were perplexed. 
In the other gospel accounts, we read that Mary thought possibly that somebody stole the body of Jesus. So she was concerned and she was asking, where is his body? They've taken him. And the reason why is because she and these women did not understand, and frankly, all the disciples did not understand the eternal purposes of God in Christ. They did not understand the plan, but this was about to change. And I want to say a couple things for us, some application perhaps here. Two things. One is this, that there could be a lot of things in our life, in your life, in my life, that can be perplexing to us due to the fact that we are not in God's word. In some regards, these women, these disciples, they should have known. I think we can say, guys, you should have known. It was revealed to you. It was put forth to you. And in our own lives, God has given us this entire book of Holy Scripture. And if we read it and consume it and dig into it and cherish it, there will be so many things in our own life that we will not be baffled and perplexed by because we have the revealed will of God. We won't be suffering in so many things if we see Christ rightly. How many of us perhaps are suffering because our view of God is tainted? We don't see God, his character, who he is rightly. And therefore, our days are bombarded with perplexing suffering. If we don't see God's word rightly, that's why it's so important here at Maricopa Springs that we seek to teach the scriptures and we ask you guys to open your Bibles so that you can follow along and you can go, yep, that's what the text says. But if we don't read God's word rightly, that will lead us off into a path that oftentimes is harmful and damaging to our life. But if, guys, if we are in Scripture, praying humbly, doing it in community, then by faith God will give us insight so that many things in our life will not trouble us and we will bear much fruit. But there's also some perplexing sufferings that take place in God's sovereign will that aren't due to us not knowing God's word. They're due to God working his plan in our life for his glory. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, the apostle, is recounting all of his sufferings that he and those who are ministering the gospel with him are undergoing. And in the process of that, he says a phrase. He says that we are perplexed but we are not driven to despair. And beloved, I'm sure some of us are here in the trenches right now. Some of us have been in the past. Some of us will be in the future going through things in our life that we just step back and we go, what the heck are you doing, Lord? Suffering, trials, tribulations that perplex us, but they should never drive us to despair. And the reason why is not because we know every intricacy of God's details for our life, but... We know the big picture of what God is doing. When we know that Jesus is Lord, that he rose, that he is reigning right now at the right hand of the Father, when suffering comes, we are not shaken by that because we know God is good and working all things for our good, Scripture says, right? For the purposes of his glory. So whether it's cancer at a young age, whether it's the death of somebody you love, whether it's troubles with income and job, whether it's conflict within the home or the church, or wherever, all sorts of sufferings. Beloved, if we are rooted in Christ, we can trust and rest that being perplexed should not lead us to being in despair. And we can trust the goodness of God, and we can have hope, and we can rejoice together. Verses 4 through 5. 
backing it up a little bit into four. It says, while they were perplexed about this, so they're perplexed at the tomb, it says that suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Um, if you do a survey of angels appearing to people in the Bible, you will find that the common response is to fall down as though dead, to be terrified, to bow down to worship because these beings are so mighty, so awesome. And as I was reading through this, I thought, I bet you oftentimes we just read right over this and continue on. But what stuck out to me was helping us see the holiness of God. And these angels here, and angels as they are revealed to us in Scripture, should point us to God's holiness. And I think this is an attribute, really the, the divine character of God, that is oftentimes just overlooked. And possibly you might be sitting here going, what does holy even mean? Holiness is to be set apart. And God is set apart unto himself and is like none of his creation. We can start talking about the holiness of God as we start listing the attributes of God. His love, his justice, his righteousness, his patience, his kindness. Even though we can reflect some of God's character, we can never be God. He is set apart. He is unlike us. And these angels appearing to these women cause them to be terrified and to bow down and to begin to worship them. And I want us just to pause for a second and consider, what do you, how do you think about God on a daily basis in regards to his holiness? And specifically here, thinking and meditating on the fact that Jesus had to suffer and die, taking on the wrath of God for us because God is holy. Do we ever think of the fact that we don't belong in the presence of God? Grady just talked about, uh, I believe it was last week, about the veil or two weeks ago being torn as Jesus was crucified. There was the, tail that was, or, or the veil that was in the temple that separated God's presence from his people and only the priest could go into the Holy of Holies with blood to atone for the people of God. And that was an indication that God has been separated from union or communion with us as his image bearers, his creatures. And it is because of this separation that Jesus had to suffer and die in order to redeem us. And frankly, we should be terrified, flopping. I heard one guy say, it's like you would, if you saw Jesus, you would just be flopping around like a dead fish, you know, out of water. We shouldn't approach God's throne, God's person with just a flippidness. Even though God is love and he has made us his own and Jesus is our friend and we have communion and fellowship with him, Jesus is holy. God is holy, and in him making us holy, we still should be bowed down in reverence, and we should have a proper view of who Jesus is. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, and I want to read it for us and let this sink in this morning. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim were these, are these amazing angels. And these seraphim each had six wings. Two of them, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. 
And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Beloved, consider this. These seraphim are holy creatures. They have no sin. And they themselves aren't even allowed to be in the presence of God without covering their eyes and their feet, metaphorically showing that they are still so far back from being like God that they don't even deserve to be in his presence. And how good it is that when we read this account of the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, that this would not just be familiar language, but it would cause us to read texts like this and go, whoa, God loves sinners. And he's bringing us into communion with himself that was severed. And how amazing that is that we can stand before God in Christ Jesus and have no fear of his wrath because he has poured it all out on Jesus and has made us his own. This is grace. This is amazing grace. Let's continue on. The, the angels, they say to the women, they say, why are you seeking or looking for the living among the dead? As uh, Grady and I were talking about this passage, he was going to do a little teaching up north camping, and uh, this verse really for him stuck out. He was like, man, I just can't wait to just talk about this one phrase right here. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? And when I read it, I have to admit, I was reading this going, man, this just, I'm not really grasping this. And I think it's because at face value, you read this and you go, man, these women were not seeking the living, Right? They weren't. They weren't seeking Jesus alive. They were seeking the dead among the dead. They were going to the tomb to care for his dead body, sorrowful, mourning, have no idea what God's purposes are, thinking that their Messiah is done away with, it's over. And so as, as I read that, I just went, man, this is a fascinating verse. And I thought of John chapter 11 and how these women should have known that Jesus was not going to stay dead. And in John 11, if you recall, Jesus goes to his friend's tomb, Lazarus, and Lazarus has been dead for four days. And Jesus makes this statement as he's talking to Mary and Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, even though you die, if you believe in me, you will never die. You will live. Do you believe this? And they should have known that Jesus was not going to stay in the tomb. They should have known because Jesus declared himself to be the resurrection and the life. And then also we know that Jesus again told them that he was going to be crucified and he was going to rise again. And so these women, they should have never been going to this tomb seeking the dead, among the dead. They should have been seeking the living. And these angels are basically just amplifying that for them to realize that Jesus is alive. He is alive. But I want to ask us a metaphorical question. What is it that we, you, me, seek in our own lives that is dead, but deceives us as if it actually brings life? I'm sure there's a handful of things you can think of right away. Some of them probably for you, I think they are for me, are subtle. They might not seem at face value like, hmm, Trevor's seeking things of worthlessness. Those things don't seem to bring eternal value. But 
there's things in my life, there's things in your life that we seek to place our hope and we, we seek them as if they're going to bring for us eternal value. And Scripture tells us, God tells us, those things are going to perish. Those things are going to fade away. Those things are rubbish. Those things are stored up where moth and rust destroy. But do not seek those things. Rather, seek the things that are above. I've been thinking of that verse this week. Seek the things that are above, heavenly things where Christ is, seated at God's right hand, reigning now. And how often do we, every single day, fall short of God's standards, of his devotion, of his love? Like Jeremiah said, is, are we eating God's word? And I, I think we all can bow down and prostrate ourselves to the floor and say, Lord, we are holy, or we are, we are unholy, we are unclean. Have mercy on us. Guys, it is only Jesus who brings life. Let us not seek dead things in our lives. Let us seek Jesus. Let us pursue one another. We had some friends over last night from church. It was a great time. How, how, how much more, I think is the best term we can say, how much more should we be engaging one another who love Jesus with fellowship with one another, spurring one another on to live for Jesus? Because the world wants to suck us in. It wants to tamper with us. It wants to tempt us to focus on worldly things. We need one another to be reminding each other that we are just passing through. I drove to Maricopa this morning. I confess we don't live here. That might change here in the future. But we drove to Maricopa. We were passing through the barren desert. And I think we need to consider that scripture tells us we are like passing through pilgrims. This isn't our home. We shouldn't be nestling in here thinking, man, let's try to get to 90 try to get to 80, and just live the best life now. We should be seeking to invest our life for Christ. And guys, the fruit is going to come if we do that. We're going to see neighbors come to Christ. We're going to see needs being met in our community. We're going to see people weeping because they've been born of God's grace. And people are going to know that we are his disciples because of the love that we have for one another, because of the devotion that we have for Christ. So don't be like these women who are seeking the living among the dead, thinking that that will give you life. It will not. Verse 6. Verse 6. The response. The angels say, He is not here, but has risen. I want to pause, because we know Easter Everybody knows Easter, right? Jesus rose from the dead. We get up early. We do a service early in the morning. We do Easter activities. And it's kind of like that's the resurrection time. And then the rest of Christianity, I think for most, honestly, I don't think we consider the resurrection enough. But the Bible, the New Testament, is overly emphatic with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future resurrection that is awaiting us if we are in Christ. And I wanted to just highlight a couple things for us because of the resurrection that we have received. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul the Apostle is writing to the Christians in Rome, and he's talking about this uh, reality how though we are justified in Christ and we've been given new life, there still is this thing called the flesh that wars against our newness of life. And he makes this statement in the 8th chapter talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and I want to read this for us, and I want you to consider that when these angels said to these women, he is not here but has risen, that this text 
comes directly from the application of that resurrection. Listen to Paul. He says, If the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells or lives in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I love this passage because this passage is actually talking about our life now as Christians. That through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the same Spirit, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus up, has actually given us power over our mortal bodies, that is sin, to walk in obedience to Christ. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. Guys, this should just cause us to be perplexed in a good way. This should make us just marvel and go, whoa, do we think about our Christianity with that type of power? Or is Christianity to you just a set of common beliefs that you just adhere to and you just go about your day and you read this dead book and we just call ourselves a Christian? This is supernatural. If you are in Christ, it's because the Spirit of God has breathed newness into you and raised you up, just like Jesus, literally a human being, was raised out of a tomb and walked again and lived again. I want to talk about our redemption being secured because of the resurrection of Christ for a few minutes. When we think about salvation, oftentimes I think Christians think about this initial response to the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that salvation is simply just maybe repeating a prayer, raising your hand, uh, going up the aisle, making a decision for Jesus. But I don't think Christians think often enough that salvation is a secured redemption that came from Christ from start to finish, that it's not simply us making a decision, but it's because Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again that we have security in our salvation. Listen to John's account of Jesus before he's crucified. Listen to the power that Jesus has and how this then, uh, how this then uh, connects us to our secured redemption. Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. And no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own will. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. I don't know about you guys, but this sounds like a strong Savior. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and Pilate in his futility thought, I have the power to crucify you to set you free. Speak to me, Jesus, in his pompous arrogance. And Jesus said to Pilate, no, actually you don't. You have only authority that's been granted to you by God, my Father. And if he hadn't willed this, you would have no authority over me. This is the Jesus who in John chapter 10 says that his sheep follow him. That he knows his sheep by name. And that none of his sheep will be snatched from his hand. Christian, if you are in Christ this morning, if you have believed upon the gospel, know this, that the resurrection of Christ has secured your redemption once and for all. And none of his sheep will be lost. In John 6, 37, Jesus says this concerning his work at Calvary, being raised up on the cross, and then the resurrection that would be to come. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
If you, might ha- if you are here this morning and perhaps you've grown up in a Christianity or been around Christian teachings that, that tell you that, man, salvation, yeah, Jesus did like something over here at the cross, but man, it's up to you. Keep yourself in this faith. Make sure you persevere by your own abilities. Make sure you don't lose your salvation. This text here tells us those people are teaching false doctrine. Because Jesus here is not going to lose any that the Father gives him, and none will be cast out from his presence. Jesus is risen. This is good news for us. And in 1 Thessalonians, listen to this text. Uh, this is just a, a little side note, but we're going to start going through 1 and 2 Thessalonians in 2019. It's going to be amazing. Um, but listen to what Paul says in, in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. He says, For they themselves, people, that is outside, are reporting concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son Jesus from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is coming. Christian, if you are here this morning and you're reading this text, take great comfort. Wrath is coming. Think of Noah, when God told Noah to build an ark and God looked upon the face of the earth and saw that man's, man was continually wicked, increasing in evil, and God told Noah, build this ark, I'm going to wipe everybody out. That was the judgment of God. That was a prelude to the coming wrath that Jesus will spread upon this earth when he returns. And the ark represents, it's a typology of Jesus himself. Noah's family was preserved from the wrath of God by being in the ark. And if we are in Christ this morning, this Jesus whom God raised from the dead, he delivers us from the wrath to come, the wrath that is coming. Guys, this is good news, and this is news that should spur you on to live for Christ. And lastly, let's finish things up looking at verse 7, the end of 6 in verse 7. The angels tell them he is not here, he is risen, And then they make the statement, Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. I want to finish up this sermon with unfolding for us God's plan of redemption. I know in my own Christian walk, as I look back over the course of God's growth in my life, when I was a newer Christian, even years after, I didn't have a good understanding of the whole picture of what God is doing, right? I knew that Jesus died for my sins. I knew certain passages of scripture. But if you were to say, Trevor, give me, like, step back and give me the big picture of what God's purposes are, I'd be like, well, not really sure I could do that. But it is so crucial that we understand that when Jesus told his disciples that it is necessary for the Son of Man to be crucified, be betrayed, crucified, buried, and raised. This was not God's plan B. This was God's plan A from all eternity. And I want to just take us through a small survey of Scripture showing you guys that the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ was God's eternal purpose. And that his purpose has been consistently carried out because God is sovereign. And his will will be unfolded perfectly. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. And after they sin, 
God curses them, and he also curses the serpent. And as he curses Satan, he makes this undergirded promise. And he tells Satan, he says, the seed of the woman is going to crush your seed. And he said, when he does this, that your head will be crushed and the woman's seed's heel will be bruised. And it's the idea, if we were to, my wife was looking up rattlesnakes for some reason, um, but if you found a rattlesnake, you shouldn't do this, but just imagine if you just crushed its head with your heel. And as you grinded your heel into the ground, crushing that snake's head, you would kill that snake, but in the process, your heel would become tender or bruised because of the force you used to kill it. And in Genesis 3.15, we see from the very beginning God's purposes that God's plan was to send a redeemer, one who would come through the lineage of the woman who was going to crush the seed of the serpent, that is, destroy Satan, and to redeem his people. This is from the very beginning. As we continue on in Scripture, there's a man named Abram. God pulls him out of the common folk. He was just like you and me, a Gentile. And God said, look, I'm going to make a promise with you, Abram. And he changed his name to Abraham, and he said, through you, your seed, I am going to bless the nations through you. And it is that promise made to Abraham, the seed of Abraham's loin is the same seed of Genesis 3.15, the seed that would come down from the woman through Abraham that would bless the nations, that would save God's people. And as we continue through Scripture, there comes a man named David. And David becomes the king of Israel. And his kingly role, God makes a promise with David as David is close to death. And he tells David, look, you're going to have a son or a seed. And this seed is going to reign on your throne for a month. No, that's not what it says. Forever. Forever. Okay? And when we read that text, we understand that David's sons after him died. So what is God talking about? He's talking about an eternal son, one who would come and reign forever. Jesus, who we've been looking at through the gospel of Luke for years now, the Davidic king. And then Isaiah. As you read through Isaiah, we have the most prolific Old Testament image of the crucifixion in Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah depicts for us Jesus who would come and who would suffer and die for his people. And it says that by his wounds, the chastisement of God, the wrath of God would be laid on Jesus so that we could be healed. This wasn't something new. This was something threaded throughout history. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see Peter, who's a Jew, standing up at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit of God descends upon God's people as promised, and there are those standerbys who are looking and mocking and going, man, those people must be drunk. And Peter stands up and he preaches what they say is his first sermon. And listen to what Peter says. He could have said a lot of things, but listen to what he says. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Beloved, this is amazing. This plan 
that these angels are reminding these women of is something that has been ordained before the foundation of the world. It was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that Jesus would be crucified and raised again. And then in 1 Timothy, as we move into the New Testament, the letters, I love Paul's writing here to the church or to Timothy, and he says this. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. Jesus didn't come into the world to take a look and see if man needed saving, to check out the landscape, to just plop down and settle in for the long haul. Jesus came on a mission, a mission that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God, ordained before the foundation of the world, and that was that Jesus would come and purchase his people. He would pay for their sins, he would rise from the dead, and he would secure for us an eternal redemption. And then lastly, what does all this point to? Why is it that we, that we are existing here? Why did God create us? Why are we redeemed if you were in Christ? Why is God concerned about this plan that he had in place? And in John 17, we see why it is that Jesus was sent, why it is that God's plan was enacted in time. And that is this, that Jesus tells the Father as he is about to go to the cross, he prays and he says, Father, the same glory that you and I had before the foundation of the world, the fellowship that we had with one another, he's looking forward to regaining that in greater fullness after he accomplishes the work of redemption. The glory of God, guys, is why God saves sinners. He loves us, that is true. But his love for us is not contingent on us alone. Salvation isn't, we're not the end all of what God is doing and saving us. God is the end all. Um, this is just a quick plug. We're going through the New City Catechism. It's a, it's a cool little, uh, you can look it up on the web app for kids. Um, and it just goes through questions throughout scripture. And we were looking at one of these questions about the glory of God and just realizing that the whole purpose of our existence, why God created us, is to glorify him. And the greatest glory that, that God can receive from us is his work of redeeming us, which includes nothing we have done. That's amazing. Let me just finish by reading Revelation for us, and then we will close. In Revelation, this sums it all up. Listen to this. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then in verse, or chapter 12 it says, After this John looked and behold he saw a great multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice together, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne of God and worshipped, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Guys, as we read this, let us take away from this this morning that God is, God is 
bringing about his purposes and salvation. That what we just read is going to be the experience of those who are in Christ. One day we will see the fullness of God's purposes fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. People from all over, all diversity will come and worship the Lamb. And let us praise him in our own life. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for your scriptures, God. Help us to see as, as we read texts like this, God, that, that your plan is perfect, it is big, and that you are the sovereign king, that you accomplish your purposes, that you love sinners, that Jesus came to redeem sinners, and that that is a work that we get to participate in by your grace. God, that it would change us here at Maricopa Springs, how we view our neighbors, how we view our jobs, how we view the church, living on mission, eagerly seeking to be with you in the future, loving you now, cherishing your word. God, we bless your name. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for Christ. And it's to you that we pray and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.